All right, everybody, welcome. You're in the green room. We're talking about housing prices in Austin, Texas. Uh, weighing in here is, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're jumping in. Um, we're in the green room. We're going to talk about our guests. We have some awesome guests. As you know, I'm Ray Wong um, with uh, Disrupt TV. And of course, with my awesome producer, L, and our awesome co founder, co host, um, my best friend here, Bala Afshar. Um, more importantly, um, you know, we started this five years ago, so very, very cool. So we're going to do some quick intros, working our way backwards and uh, talking about like where everyone's from, um, a little bit of what you're going to talk about on the show, very, very quick. And then, of course, uh, we're going to go in reverse order, and then we're going to do some credits, and we're going to jump right into the show with some introductions and thanks to our sponsors. So, okay, let's start with uh, Mel. Uh, tell us uh, where you're from and uh, what you're going to be talking about today. Uh, so I'm actually, this is a complicated question, <laughs> actually more than you think, so I'm French, but I actually live in New York for the time being, uh, and I've lived all over, all around the world, and I published in September of last year a book um, called Trampled by Unicorns uh, that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, which is talking about uh, empathy and technology and how to make the tech ecosystems more empathetic and more human centric. And then it just happened that I also became the CEO of Techstars. Wow, awesome, sure. perfect. Congratulations, that worked out well. All right, Tasha. Hey, I'm Tasha Keeney. I'm an analyst at ARK Invest. Uh, at ARK Invest, we focus entirely on disruptive innovation. And um, as part of that, I do a lot of research on autonomous driving, uh, autonomous drones, and 3D printing. Uh, so sort of talking about what the future of those industries is today. Very cool. And our guest from very, very far and very early, Glenn, tell us a little bit where you're calling from and what you're going to talk about today. Yeah, so calling, calling from uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, so obviously very, very far away. Um, and uh, from Yellowfin BI. So yeah, from, from my perspective, uh, really enthusiastic about data and what data does for organizations and how people can use analytics uh, to improve their performance ultimately. All right, transcending time and space into the internet. We are here and we're gonna start the show. So, uh, Val, you do the honors. And right. oh, we'll drop everyone out. Ready? Three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do best, our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. And uh, breaking news, his new book is coming out this year titled Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and one of the most influential futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Fala Ashar. But more than more, being more than a digital evangelist for Salesforce, he is a thought leader, someone to follow. Even Katy Perry is following him now on Twitter. And of course, if you want inspirational quotes, inspirational ideas, talk, check in on Fala Ashar. Also a keynote speaker, also on business TV. And of course, you're seeing him a lot on keynotes with very, very top customers all around the world. But it's not our guest. It's really, it's not about us. It's really about our guests who matter here. And of course, we have a wonderful sponsor, Robots and Pencils, who's been sponsoring our 
our vet, our show for quite a few episodes. Uh, so we want to thank them, but more importantly, welcome our first guest. So Vala, who do we have for our first guest today? It is our pleasure to have Glenn Rabbi, the CEO and co-founder of Yellowfin, an analytics and business intelligence software company focused on helping businesses understand their data. Glenn is passionate about data and improving business performance through analytics. Prior to co-founding Yellowfin, Glenn worked for National Australia Bank in multiple roles, including senior business consultant, global manager. While working on global data warehouse projects at the bank, Glenn saw firsthand the frustration that business people had working with complex data analytics tools. He decided uh, there, uh, there has to be a better way. That was the seed for Yellowfin. You can follow all the work that Yellowfin is doing on Twitter at YellowfinBI, Y-E-L-L-O-W-F-I-N-B-I. Welcome, Glenn, to the Shark TV. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us early morning, Melbourne. <laughs> I really appreciate it. That's all right. It's a pleasure. So it's wonderful having you. And, you know, if anything, one of the hottest topics this year has been the role of BI in analytics. We used to relegate some companies, not all. Most of us used to relegate these to that report you read at the end of the week. You know, the one where you just kind of say, oh, OK, that's kind of cool. Here's what we did. Um, and suddenly the pandemic hit and analytics and BI took center stage. People started the day with, you know, business analytics and they started look day trying to figure out what the reports were. And they worked throughout the day with it and it was no longer a retrospect. Uh, it was something that you began the day with, ended the day with, and of course, was going on continuously. So, so we know the importance. We see that importance that's actually happening today. What's next in the world of BI and analytics? Yeah, look, I think, to be honest, I think um, BI and analytics has been around for a long, long time. It's really, it's quite an interesting space. But fundamentally, uh, what we still see today is very analyst-centric applications. And I think the next wave of analytics is going to be very much about the data consumer. So uh, products that actually help business people consume data in the way they want to consume it. So, you know, technology today, products today are very, very analyst centric. They, they're designed for people who love to work with data. And, I, you, know, you know, I love personally, I love data myself, but ultimately they're about, <laughs> they're about products that people who, you know, who, who get it, who love it, who get passionate about it and who want to do things with it. But I think to make it really all pervasive and something that people use without even thinking, uh, you're going to see new ways in which uh, analytics is going to be embedded into workflows and, and business processes, but also new UI that allows business users to truly be able to do their own self-service. And I would say in a way that they don't even realize that they're actually doing it. You know, it's they'll be able to ask questions and act, interact with data uh, almost passively is, is probably the right way to, to think about it. Um, that's a great point, right? Our, one of our analysts, Doug Henschens, talks about this, right? It's about getting self-service analytics, getting the ability to do next best action in the front line, right? Not waiting yep. for something else to happen. So that's something big. Yeah, I think what you said in terms of uh, integration or embedding analytics into workflow and, and helping companies mature from, you know, descriptive to diagnostic to predictive and ultimately prescriptive use of analytics where they... Yep. You know, it's guided selling, guided marketing, guided customer service or commerce, super important. I saw a video where you talked about the importance of radical transparency and the willingness to get feedback from downstream. I think it was advice to CEOs that, you know, if you want to embrace and cultivate a culture of data-driven organization, you really have to first appreciate and exercise radical transparency 
because sometimes the data will tell you things that you don't want to see. <laughs> and, you, know, you, you can't be defensive. You have to you know, let the data drive your decision. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of trust and radical transparency, especially since last year where the entire world moved to a decentralized digital only. So it's hard to read the room. You're not there in person. We're all remote. So the importance of analytics is so much more, but really the underpinning in terms of having a good culture where you know, you're not shocked with the findings and you're willing to absorb, learn, relearn, and to change yourself if you have to, because the data tells you you need to. Yeah, look, that's, that's a really fascinating topic. And I had a lot of conversations over the last year, specifically around uh, using the metaphor of how various governments were responding to COVID. Um, you know, and you know, and this is this is not a dig at the US. This is actually a dig, even in Australia, where you know we did phenomenally well in actually, you know, being able to have almost a COVID-free country. Uh, what, overall, the the reality is almost every politician, in irrespective of their political uh, agenda, uh, ignored the data, in, including including in Australia, yep. right? And I, I find that to me was like this classic wake-up call to go, my God, if if we can sit here as as a, as a as a population, and we've got access to all this data, and we see those logarithmic charts, and we, we have access to all that data, why is it that you've got people in power interpreting or ignoring it, <laughs> doing their own things in a completely different way? Um, and to me, COVID was a, it sort of highlighted what businesses shouldn't be doing. Uh, you know, that organizations should be looking at the data without fear or favor, and mm. making choices and decisions around that. And I think that takes, from a leadership perspective, it takes incredible amount of uh, maturity, emotional maturity, to be able to actually say, what is the data telling me? How do I look at it? What does it mean for me? Um, but once you head down that path as, as a leader, and once you embrace analytics in a way that you manage your business, it allows you to have what I call a dispassionate conversation with your organization, mm -hmm. right? So you're not walking in emotional. You're just simply saying, this is what the data tells me. Now, help, help me to understand why it tells me that. Help, what, what has happened in the organization that drives these things? Because there's externalities that the data never tells you, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, why you lose a deal or what's happening in a particular region or the political outcomes here, et cetera. So those are the, that's what you're expecting from your managers and from, from your line people and from people that work for you. Um, and but data is the catalyst for the conversation. It's not the end of the conversation. It's the catalyst. It's the starting point. And I think people miss that point, right? That you use it, um, but you you need to be dispassionate. You can't walk into a room and just kick someone in the head. And go, I saw the numbers. You know, <laughs> the question is why the numbers? You know, like the 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 numbers are just the starting point. Um, and analytics is the starting point. And I think. Um, you know, if you're really going to embrace data in your organization, you have to think about it in those terms. Um, and, and and what that ultimately helps you to do is to create an organization where people be, become trustful of having those conversations. You know, a lot, a lot, there are a lot of business cultures where people fear the open conversation. Um, yeah. And that has to change for, for data to make sense and to be yeah, help you drive your business properly. Makes total sense. You know, one of the challenges that, and, and this is the problem with this data, is that you forget that part of the data is, is part of telling a story. 
right? And one of the things that you guys have been advocating for quite some time is, is this notion of trading that data, creating these stories, talking about what's happening, you know, helping people not just take the dashboards or, you know, get the analytics, but get the data storytelling. So talk a little bit about data storytelling, because I think it's it's pretty important because it, you can have the data, but if there's no story, what the heck, right? <laughs> well, it's, it, look, it's precisely what I just sort of touched on then is, you know, if you, you can look at a dashboard every day of your life and it, it's not going to tell you what's happening in your business, right? You, you're going to get a sense of the trends, you're going to get a sense of the numbers, but what it's not going to do is tell you the underlying drivers of your business. And that's what data storytelling to me is about. You know, it is the long form narrative. So when I started, uh, you know, long, many, many years ago as a data analyst, um, you know, back in the day, fundamentally what I did was write long form analyses for the business. You know, so, you know, I, I would see the data and then I have to explain it. So I have to walk around to each department business unit and go, what happened here? Why did it happen? And I'd have to pull that together for the executive team. Um, and that, I actually think that that has been lost, um, yeah, on our, the, on the our whole art, this whole <laughs> yeah, exactly art of right. actually telling the story is lost. It's like, here's your report. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, what yeah. do I do with it? You know, <laughs> that's, that's so. a, you know, and people just expect the data to tell you everything, but it doesn't, right. It, it never will. And so for me that again, you know, when, when, when I think about helping organizations to be successful and thinking about how data really underpins that it's having someone in the organization that can tell those data stories, that can actually bring all that together, interpret the data, add value to it, um, and bring that narrative together to say, and then ultimately, you know, from an executive, we take it all the way through the end, from a, when you take that story to the board, you're then saying, well, this is what we're gonna do about it, you know, and driving those actions. Um, uh, that, that, you know, I'm very, for me, that's, you know, sort of like the ultimate closed loop, if you like, of that sort of strategic uh, analysis as opposed to your day-to-day -day operational piece. Glenn, uh, which which line of business leader is at the forefront of uh, championing creating this culture of a data driven culture? Is it the CIO? Is it the CFO, CMO? And and has the persona changed since the pandemic? Uh, you know, is it, uh, the the need for cost reduction optimization uh, in business has that led to a different line of business leader coming to you, uh, asking for your company to help them transform? Uh, who's at the forefront uh, of, of, of driving change? Yeah, look, you know, in all honesty, um, you know, the forefront of driving change, I'd have to argue it has to be the CEO. CEO. Uh, you know, it has to be. Yeah, but sure. irrespective, you know, I think, it, and especially when we're talking about transparency and actually and, and building a culture of data, if the CEO is happy to make gut, you know, gut decisions, mm. everyone's going to be happy to be doing gut decisions. Um, but what I saw, certainly as a result of the pandemic, and particularly in retail, where a lot of organizations were going direct to consumer, where historically they weren't, that, that has shift. actually, massive shift. Yeah. That, has, that has been really head of sales, is the person all of a sudden goes, oh my God, who am I selling to? Who, you know, and, and, and asking those questions and going, well, where are my customers? Where do we need to be? You know, how do we need to, to, to drive our organization? Um, I'm seeing that far more than I think, and it's, it's been a shift away from marketing. In a sense, like marketing. And that's, marketing a chief, and that's, a, that's the chief revenue officer or the person that owns commerce, because we had, you know, commerce has grown ten years in the last few months yep. in terms yep. of e-commerce, and we had a head of McKinsey practice for North America speak to seventy percent of, of buyers have changed brands since the start of the pandemic and, and so almost rest in peace loyalty to brand if you didn't show value or it's availability people are switching uh, and numbers unheard of in some regions up to 90 percent 
have changed uh, brands. So, so when you talk about the person responsible for revenue, it's it's uh, commerce and you know the head of sales uh, uh, inclusive. Yeah, look, I, definitely, I think you know in both ends, but I think what again. These, these organizations were grappling with precisely those problems. You know, they completely disrupted their, their, their organization in terms of their yeah. go-to-market. Um, and all of a sudden, it's that kind of emperor in new clothes, right? You're just sitting there going, well, who am I actually selling to? How am I right. selling to them? Where are right. they? And, and how do I build brand loyalty? Like, because ultimately that becomes the question, right? Is, right. is it precisely that is like, and I had, a, I, I can't mention the brand, but a fascinating conversation where, um, you know, we're talking to head of revenue and, and he was saying, you know, marketing's actually marketing the wrong audience. You know, we now know that we're selling to X, and that's who we should be building the brand with. They're super loyal, et cetera. But we continue to perceive as an organization, we perceive this segment, yeah. but the reality is they're selling to this segment, and you've got to embrace that segment. But the organization wasn't, it was really quite a, it was a inter, really interesting conversation. They just fundamentally weren't ready to shift, right? But yeah, it's, and, and I think, again, you know, when you're using data, you just have to you have to be able to let go. You just have to say, well, what's it telling me? Where do I need to be? And that's where I'm going to be, and not sit there and hope that somehow magically, you know, a bit of fairy dust, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, reality is reality going to warp and change, and will be a different. It, it's amazing to hear you say that it's not using data just to for process optimization. It's new business model innovation. It's new go to market strategy. It's reinvention and. And really uh, staying adaptable to this incredible change in, 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 in that we've experienced over the last year. 100%. I mean, there's, I, I view analysts as you know, two streams. There's the operational stream, which you talked, you know, essentially, which is, you know, how do I run my business day to day? And how do I, how do I optimize that and put that into people's business processes? Um, and then there's that whole, you know, data to actually run strategy. And to be constantly thinking about who we sell to, why we sell to them, what works, what doesn't, um, and to be nimble and agile in that space. Okay. Well, while data and analytics is not a controversial subject, let's talk about startups in Melbourne versus Sydney. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tell us what the scene's like in Melbourne. What's going on? We know you have the better coffee. Um, that usually is a productivity factor and some great Coffee's amazing in Melbourne. Yeah. Amazing. yeah. So. Look, I, I like to say, you know, and, and I am from Melbourne. I've been here for, you know, for, for most of my working life. But, um, you know, if you, if you take Sydney and you take away the harbour and you take away the views... Um, you know, you'll get you'll get to Melbourne, right? So it's <laughs> it's uh, you know there's, there's this healthy tension, but I think we're you know, we're, we're actually really pretty similar uh, in many ways. It's not really worth the argument. Um, but you know, I think right now, I mean, what's interesting about Australia as opposed to you know most countries on the planet is that there really are only two cities that um, that business exists in, right? And Sorry to Perth and everyone else, but it's... Uh, well, my camera yeah, thinks they're in the business. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really quite fascinating because only 80%, 80% of our, you know, yeah, of commerce is, is done in two cities. And it makes it really different compared to a country like the United States. You know, it's it's True. it's a quite interesting dynamic. Um, but yeah, it's good. But how's the startup scene? Like, are, are the VCs there? Are you good early stage? Yeah, look, you know, we're going to yeah. have like Mayo Gavet uh, later. She's like, she's like the tech star CEO. She's later on the show. She's going to talk about, you know, a little bit about startups as well, right? Tasha's following the disruptive tech startups that are out there. Like, what's it like? Like, is it is it good? Look, are you seeing more interest? So oh, there's definitely there's been there's been a, a lot of uh, of uh, activity in the startup space, specifically around. Uh, Sort of, you know, in the sort of financial area. So, sort of, uh, that that's been that's probably one of the areas I think we we excel in in Australia. So, um, 
but you know, historically, the, the sort of capital markets and the VC and, and all that was was certainly lagging behind the rest of the states, and and, and uh, that is slowly catching up, uh, which is great. So you, you have the ability now to actually fund a business and get it to market. Uh, and the biggest issue you have in Australia always is how do you leave Australia? Like that's the first thing. You become an international company very quickly because you know it's it's a country of thirty million. You've got to sell somewhere else, and so um, that's Why would always you leave the job. Australia. No, it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful country. So. It's it's, look, it's um, lovely. Yeah. My uh, my final question to you: um, advice to CEOs um, or, or businesses in general in terms of how they can accelerate the adoption of AI and ML and some of the advanced capabilities that help, you know, help it not, you know, not just visualization, but really uh, data maturity so that, you know, you can make decisions in real time and create value at the speed of need. What do they need to do to accelerate adoption of these new emerging and exciting technologies? Oh, yeah. don't, don't leave it in the hands of the technologists. It's probably the real question, right? <laughs> like, uh, it's, um, yeah, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. No, buy, buy our stuff. No, um, no, the reality is you do want to have people, you, you want to have and identify a real use case. Like, get, you know, get down. Like, you're running a business, folks. You know, you're not running a technology kindergarten. Um, and you want to be finding something that's going to make a difference to your business that you perceive is going to add value. And don't, you know, and don't trial it, but go all in is, is probably my answer. Like, I think too many, and again, this is, this is part of the problem of technology overall, is the whole idea of the MVP. The MVP is, is minimal, right? It says minimal. It's, it's minimal for a reason, and the outcomes will be minimal. Um, so you know, what you need to do is, is actually identify something where there's going to be true value to your business and then put the effort behind it and go really hard and deliver on it and don't let it just die a slow death somewhere in a corner. Um, that's what I would do. But um, yeah, it's, there, is, there, is so much, there is so much opportunity with analytics now to optimize what people do. Yeah. Uh, that's, and that's the exciting piece ultimately. Sage advice. Yeah. Sage advice, wise words. You heard it here first. We're running a tech business, not a technology kindergarten uh, for all the startups, <laughs> and startups that are out there. We're here with Glenn Robbie, CEO of Yellowfin. Check out his company's Twitter handle at YellowfinBI. And more importantly, uh, catch him later on replays here. And thank you so much for being on the show and coming, waking up early in the morning. We're watching the sunrise in Melbourne for us. So. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, we did see that. <laughs> very, Jeez, very cool. All right. And we're off to our next guest. And thank you so much. We're sponsored by robots and pencils. Um, if you can check them out, if you're doing design and anything else very, very innovative, give them a holler. Um, and more importantly, we got our next guest, the one and only. Who do we have? The one and only, one of our favorite guests, uh, Tasha Keeney, analyst at ARC Investment Management. Tasha joined ARC uh, in 2014 uh, as an analyst for ARC's automation technology, autonomous technology and robotic strategy. Tasha covers autonomous cars, drones, additive manufacturing, infrastructure development, and innovative materials. Tasha frequently appears on CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, Fox Business. Ray, giving you run for your money with all these incredible appearances. Tasha has been called. I just try not to research. follow her. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, a tough act to follow for sure. Her research has been featured in Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired, Verge, Bloomberg, CNN, Money, Market Watch, and many other publications. You can follow Tasha's incredible work on Twitter at Tasha Ark, T-A-S-H-A-A-R-K. Welcome back, Tasha, to Disrupt TV. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
Thanks for being here. Oh my God, you guys are, so those who don't know, ARK Invest is one of the most innovative firms, thematic investing, thinking of disruption, uh, and Kathy is back. So congratulations over there. Um, but more importantly, let's talk about Tesla. That's one of the areas that you cover. Um, and I think we're wrong when we say covered in the autonomous EV space, because it is much more than that. So how far is Tesla ahead of the competitors in EV and all the other sectors you think they're about to enter? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as we look at what's happened over the past year, I feel like one of the big changes, well, you know, we saw Tesla get added to the S&P, um, you know, it, it sort of proved that it, it's a it's a reputable and profitable company um, and, and sort of, you know, calm some of the concerns over like the long term earnings prospects. Um, but also, I think that, you know, we saw a lot of positive analyst notes coming out um, that are sort of recognizing this opportunity that we've really been talking about for years at ARK Invest, which is that Tesla is the clear leader in electric vehicles. Um, so, you know, last time I was on your show, I think I said they're three years ahead. Um, we actually still think they're three, if not even four years ahead of the competition. They just had battery day this year and they announced a new uh, chemistry. Uh, they're increasing range by over 50%, reducing costs by 50%, uh, reducing capital uh, in investment by nearly 70%. Um, and this will happen you know, over the next three years, uh, basically leading them to produce a car that could be a $25,000 car. Um, so, you know, our research at Ark Invest has been showing that uh, battery, battery costs are declining. Um, you know, they're following a cost curve that's uh, much faster than any cost curve that exists in the gas-powered car industry because it's more mature. And basically, Wright's law, which is what we use to model this, um, tells us that EVs are becoming yeah. cheaper and reaching this demand inflection point. So, I, I feel like people are recognizing that uh, Tesla is a leader in the market, but, um, you know, I, I still think that our, our sort of viewpoint in terms of exactly how far ahead they are uh, it, it may not be fully recognized. Well, it may not be fully recognized, but you've been right all along. And for years, you've been talking about Tesla as a leader. Last time you were on the show, a year ago, uh, there was a forecast that um, and a statement that Tesla was going to be the first trillion dollar market cap company. Um, we had a 2024 forecast with a range of 1,500 to 15,000 bear bull range in terms of stock. Uh, what are your thoughts about where they are today? I think they're the, maybe the sixth most valuable company in the world uh, at, a, at an 800 billion plus market cap. What are, what are the views? Has the forecast been accelerated? And, and what are the thoughts given the innovation that Tesla has demonstrated since the last time you were on our show a year ago? And, and, and yeah. Elon's no popper either, so. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, we, we have updated our price target. We haven't been able to publish it yet. Um, so you, sh you should look out for that from us. Um, and, and then I'd be happy to share those numbers. I'd say, you know, to talk about what, what's been what's changed since since then. So, um, you know, our old expected value for 2024, if you adjust for the split, was about $1,400 per share. Um, when we had done our analysis, we had looked at a lot of different scenarios. Uh, you know, one of them was uh, Tesla going bankrupt. Um, so compared to our old valuation, I think a lot of those lower end scenarios are a little bit less likely. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of uh, what we've changed in our analysis, well, my most recent research on Tesla um, is looking at this opportunity that they have to launch a ride hailing service with human drivers ahead of solving for full autonomy. So basically, this is a, you know, 
we had assigned a 30% uh, probability that Tesla would successfully create a fully autonomous car because it's unproven. Um, I do think, you know, they're in the lead. They have a huge data collection advantage or, or, or data advantage in general because they're the only automaker using their customer fleet um, to gather information to train their autonomous system. Um, but yeah, it, it's not certain. So, um, you know, ride hailing offers them this opportunity um, to actually sort of de-risk that a little bit because it gives them a, a recurring revenue stream um, that we think could have uh, much higher margins than the core auto business. They have a lot of competitive advantages to say Uber and Lyft because um, they can vertically integrate through insurance. It's actually cheaper per mile to drive a Tesla. So that means maybe they could take a higher cut or um, pay their drivers better. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that they could do this. And, uh, you know, we think it could add um, 30 billion in operating earnings uh, to the company by 2025. So it's a pretty significant opportunity. And will, will we see this first in countries like Norway uh, or, 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 or are these capabilities going to be piloted in the U.S.? Because there's certainly countries that are much further ahead in terms of, you know, adoption of EVs and some of these capabilities that we're talking about. That's a good question. I could see, um, you know, just given where their install base is, yeah, you could picture them. Um, I'd say they would launch in key ride hail cities. So you know, uh, places like definitely in California, you know, maybe LA, San Francisco, um, one of the cities where they have, they have a lot of cars and, you know, you know that it's going to be, uh, like a good ride hail market and a good market opportunity there. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually when they do solve for fully autonomous driving, um, they basically have the network set up. They've already laid the operational foundation for it. And in fact, maybe they can even, um, the, the ride hail service could actually help them get to that autonomous driving problem sooner um, because they're, they're collecting the exact miles that you would be driving in an autonomous ride hail service. You know, you mentioned something really interesting and, and adding to the uh, ride hail thing, uh, you know, cities with dense Tesla penetration also makes sense, right? But the other thing is like, they've been talking about insurance, like Elon's looking for actuaries. I mean, so they're about to launch their own insurance for people with Tesla, right? There are other things about electrification. Talk about that, right? Where, you know, every Tesla becomes a consumer and a producer. So, and, and, and the solar market that's going with that as well. That's a great point. So, um, you know, I think that could be one of the building blocks that they'd want to put in place um, to launch the Red Hill service as well. So you could see them launching it um, in areas where insurance is available. Um, you know, maybe after California, it's Nevada. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Tesla has this opportunity uh, to, to actually see what's happening in its cars on a more granular level um, than than any insurance company out there. Um, so they have this innate advantage uh, to, to actually, you know, sort of price correctly uh, their uh, their policy. Um, and, you know, if they eventually become an underwriter, you could picture them having a much higher margin than insurance companies collect today um, because of that data advantage. You know what? It might show up that faster drivers actually get into less accidents and I'll be okay. No, it's kidding. I'll get a little premium. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's funny. Uh, what are your thoughts about Tesla, Elon moving to Texas? Does that uh, impact your formula in terms of projections and, and uh, you know, the future value and in innovation velocity from Tesla? 
Um, you know, we have we haven't explicitly factored in a, a specific move yet. Um, and I know, you know, there's been some back and forth. Uh, Elon himself relocated, but you know, there's a question of sort of the the, the company. Um, I, I, I think that you know, perhaps Tesla does do it for for tax reasons. I think they'd probably keep uh, offices in California, maybe to keep talent. But um, you know, so, I, so I, th I think that that is sort of still to be seen. Um, but you know, like the the real driver of all of our models is that cost advantage in batteries and the modeling that we've done there. Um, it's the advantage that they have in autonomous driving, uh, where they really their uh, their approach is so that they could launch on a national scale, uh, versus a company like uh, you know Google's Waymo, for instance. Um, the way that they're testing autonomous driving and launching these pilots, it's a really painstaking process where you have to map in such high detail every city that you want to launch in. Um, so it's a much, much slower rollout strategy. So if Tesla's successful in this, um, you know, you can picture them getting a, a pretty large swath of the market um, relatively quickly, even if they're, you know, the second to launch, which they, uh, they are at this point since Waymo is uh, commercialized. That's a great point. Tesla has been really good at having customers fund their innovation all along the way, whether it's the battery technology or supercharging network or what's actually happening with autonomous vehicle driving and the data collection that's coming from the cars. I mean, you pay for the feature having X and then, you know, suddenly they're getting automated data collection versus Waymo. They've got to pay drivers to go and collect the data. So that's a huge advantage as you're talking about. And those types of scale is, is, is pretty hard to beat, along with the fact that they put a billion dollars into that Austin plant. I mean, when they light up that in Berlin, those gigafactories are going to be pretty crazy. So, so definitely some great stuff there. Um, hey, I was talking about adjacent markets earlier, but let me talk about other types of adjacent markets um, from boring company to lithium battery sales. Like, where do you see those going for Tesla as well? Yeah, you know, I've actually done some work on the boring company as well. And um, oh, cool. Yeah, and, and and it's an interesting idea because uh, you know it might sound a little crazy when you first hear about you know this idea to dig tunnels, but um, if if you look at how we think the autonomous driving market is going to evolve, um, it's it's going to so so my forecast is that um, at scale, an autonomous taxi could price profitably to the consumer at twenty five cents per mile. So that's a tenth of the cost of ride hail today or taxis today. It's less than half the cost of driving your personal car. Um, so basically, what this is going to do is bring a lot of people people into the ride hail market that might not necessarily be there today. Um, and, you know, then there could be a potential like convenience bump in that, you know, I, I use the service more than I would have otherwise because it's so cheap and so convenient. But if you take that into account, we think that traffic is going to increase pretty dramatically. So Boring Company offers, you know, a solution to circumvent that. And, um, you know, Elon has, has designed this so that it's, it's, it's uh, you know, more cost effective than the solutions that exist today to dig tunnels. Yeah, I know it's crazy. You you can actually lay out roads for cheaper than the billion dollars a mile sometimes that you're seeing. And the fact that you can do traffic management from those vehicles to actually optimize, you know, flow, right? And those two factors are pretty wild. So it is, yeah. it really is. Uh, for our audience, ARK Invest has a special thematic approach to investing. Can you share with our audience how that works? Yeah, and the ETF. So Sure. Yes. Um, so, so Arc, uh, we are entirely focused on disruptive innovation. Um, all of the analysts are focused. We're, we're we're a thematic investor, so all of the analysts are organized by theme and technology. So, I cover um, autonomous technology and three D printing. Uh, you know, my partner analyst uh, covers uh, energy storage, space exploration, uh, robotics. Um, so, we're all cr cross sector, cross industry. Uh, we publish all of our research online, um, which which isn't typical uh, for free, which is 
wasn't typical of an investment firm like ours. Um, it's really something that our CEO, Kathy, uh, from the get-go wanted to do. And, and we have what uh, we, we call an open research ecosystem, which which is that you know publishing online, using Twitter, uh, talking with others, putting our ideas out there um, to invite a discussion. Um, you know, often we get a lot of critiques. Um, we we get a lot of fans. We sort of get a mix of both. But it's a good way to meet other people that are in the space. Uh, you know, that might be in the industry. I, I meet startups this way and talk with uh, CEOs and sort of uh, really just evolve the research and sort of help us ultimately get to the truth um, and you know see where the world is going in the next five years. Awesome. And uh, we, we have a number of ETF super strategies. Rich content, super rich content. The algorithms are there. The logic is there. The pros, cons. It's, 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 and there's no other analyst that, that I know that has that level of radical transparency in terms of you know, not gating their assets and just welcoming feedback. So kudos to, to your approach. It's great. Definitely all of us benefit from it. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And, and I think part of that thematic investing that's out there, I mean, you guys have some things on the horizon. Talk about other things that are beyond the EV market, given that we know you best for that, but we know you've got other areas that you do look at. So. Yeah, well, 3D printing is another area that I cover that is pretty exciting right now. So I think it's it's a space that's really been overlooked. Um, there was a, a consumer hype in the 3D printing world in the 2015, 2014 time period, where there's this idea that there'd be a 3D printer in everyone's house. That never materialized and it never will. Um, but 3D printing is really uh, important and could be a really key tool for things like healthcare and aerospace, where you have these really complex, low volume parts. Basically, with 3D printing complexity is free. Um, you can print something cost effectively that's very, you know, in a shape that you could have never created before, basically. So during the pandemic, a lot of the healthcare supplies were 3D printed, um, yes. the replacement parts for ventilators, even some of the nasal swabs, um, because you can get 3D printing up and running faster than you could a traditional manufacturing process. So instead of waiting, waiting for those tools and those lines to be set up, you 3D print it on the spot in hours. Um, and you have your solution in days or less. Um, I think after the pandemic, it's going to become even more important as companies reconsider their supply chains because 3D printing can localize manufacturing. Um, it can it can help you cut costs. And when when you're sort of pushed to do so uh, because of the pandemic and, and maybe, you know, you're looking where to save, you're going to look to a new technology like 3D printing to help you get that advantage. That's amazing. Tasha, our next guest is CEO of Techstars. You know, they've invested in or continue to invest in over 2000 companies and uh, and they maintain a portfolio of, I think, over $185 billion in terms of companies that they've invested in. How does a startup founder, entrepreneur engage with uh, ARK Invest? Uh, how, what do you look for? Uh, and how do they, uh, you know, uh, contact you in a meaningful way where, you know, you, you, you stay engaged and learn more about what they're doing in, in their particular space? Um, well, we meet a lot of people through Twitter and, and sort of anyone that responds to our research through our website, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, there's there's so many ways that you can get in contact with us. So, uh, you know, always happy to, to field those incoming requests and, and um, you know, get get new guests on our podcast and, and talk about uh, autonomous cars and all the, the areas that we, we research. So, uh, yeah, please reach out. Terrific. Terrific. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's take a step back and talk about just in general, like the industry that's going on in financial services and, and what you guys are covering. I mean, the way you guys entered the market is, is completely like, uh, I mean, that was disruptive as well. What Kathy um, started, your founder. So talk a little bit about her and, and how she got started and how you got attracted to working with her. 
Yeah, um, so, so Kathy, you know, founded ARC to, to focus entirely on disruptive innovation and really create um, that open research ecosystem that I, I described earlier. Um, so, you know, a lot of firms don't even allow their analysts to use Twitter. Um, and, and she she thought that, you know, that sort of open source approach was really the way to go. It's really, you know, the way to the way to find the ultimate truth and 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 maybe even occasionally realize uh, where you might have made a mistake in, in your analysis when you're looking at a market or a technology. So she founded the firm in 2014. Um, you know, since then we've we've had amazing growth. Uh, that our, our total assets are over 70 billion now. Um, we we cover uh, fintech. We cover um, our, what we call our next generation internet strategy, which is things like um, AI and and the future of gaming and, and all that. Um, we have a genomic strategy, and then of course uh, where where I focus. Um, so we have uh, actively managed ETFs um, and uh, mutual funds and separately managed accounts uh, that are all around that. But um, we were one of the first uh, what what we, we would say sort of truly active ETF managers um, in, in bringing a product to market and, and sort of uh, bringing that transparency in our trading. You can sign up for our daily trading emails and, and find out um, what the trades were that day in the ETFs as well. Uh, so, you know, in addition to the research, we want to just be as transparent as possible to our investors. That's okay. Great. Hey, fun fact. Don Angie, why is that your favorite Italian restaurant? And where else would you go? Oh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, lo I love that restaurant. Well, I love, I mean, New York has the best Italian food. So that, that's just one of the, the great spots. But um, I don't know. I, I also love pizza. Uh, you know, actually, I, I've been spending. Oh, pizza time. showdown. Where's your favorite? So. <laughs> well, OK, so I've been spending some time in L.A. And um, I, I tried Pizzana recently. It's, it's uh -huh. another good pizza place. So um, yeah, I, I don't know if it, it certainly rivals New York pizza, which is pretty Pretty hard to do so that's awesome wow pizza on well, brentwood one of my favorites I, I enjoyed thin crust uh so it was in italy where i had the best pizza i just i prefer thin crust pizza but uh, uh my my, uh, my my final question is you know uh in terms of the pandemic and its impact in terms of accelerating uh, uh drone technology out of the manufacturing in 3d again we've had commerce experts say we've experienced a decade of accelerated adoption. What's your sense in terms of the last 12 months and, 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 and the pandemic's impact in terms of driving innovation in the autonomous space with drones and of course uh, 3D? Yeah, so our CEO, Kathy, has always said innovation takes share during tumultuous times. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like this past year is, is really the perfect example of that. Um, you know, as you said, we saw uh, e-commerce as a share of retail in, increase at a rate um, that, you know, we've never seen in, in such a short time period before. And a lot of that's likely not going back, um, you know. And so as we look to the future, for instance, in e-commerce, we think that um, it could grow to uh, over, to roughly 60% of retail by 2030. And and drones could actually deliver half of those volumes. So it's really only going to become um, you know, cheaper and, and more convenient as you get things like autonomous technology rolling out. Um, and you know, same thing with 3D printing, as I mentioned, it sort of is a great time for people to test the technology, understand how it works. Um, drones are used for a lot of contactless deliveries. Uh, so, so you got a lot of that experimentation, maybe that regulators or, or you know, local regulators wouldn't have been as comfortable with before, um, but now they got the opportunity to do so. 60% Ray, wow. Imagine <laughs> businesses that are not building their you know, digital infrastructure. Uh, it's, 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 it's frightening to think that, you know, there's still companies that are, that think things like e-commerce is a nice to have versus must have. 
you know, I'm so excited. Uh, this whole new disruptive world's out there. We'll be following you, Tasha, as you look at all the different things uh, from electrification to Tesla to drones to 3D printing. You can follow Tasha Keeney, analyst at ARK Invest Management. Uh, of course, you can follow her on Twitter, more importantly, at Tasha ARK. Thank you so much again for being on the show. And I will see you at Pizzano's when I sneak out there to Brentwood. <laughs> okay, can't wait. Thanks, Tasha. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, super fast, super great. And of course, we have an awesome sponsor, Robots and Pencils, but we also have better guests. So let's talk to our next guest. She is a legend in the making and in charge of something really big. So who do we have? Uh, We're honored to have uh, Mael Gavit, CEO of Techstars and author of a new book, Trampled by Unicorns. Mael has been a leading uh, technology executive uh, and entrepreneur for over 15 years. Started her first business at 16. Went on to find two, two uh, companies, served as investor and LP. Uh, Mel was recently, in fact, 10 days ago, uh, named CEO of Techstars. Uh, mm-hmm. Mission of Techstars to help entrepreneurs succeed. Techstars investments in more than 2,300 companies, including companies like Uber and Tulio, created a Techstars portfolio that is worth more than, Ray, check this out, $185 billion today. That's a B, uh, darn it. <laughs> yeah, and Techstars itself now employs uh, 300 people, 22 countries, uh, active in more than 150 countries. Uh, Mael has been named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, one of Fortune's 40 under 40, one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, and fifth among Time Magazine's list of 25 female technopreneurs. Most recently, Mael was chief operating officer uh, at real estate uh, platform Compass, a company valued over $6 billion. She has spoken regularly at leading technology industry events. Uh, her writing has appeared in Wired, Harvard Business Review, World Economic Forum, Fast Company, Fortune, and many others. She's the author of Trampled by Unicorns, which we're gonna talk about, big tech's empathy problem, how to, how to fix it. What an important topic to cover. You can follow her on Twitter at M-A-E-L-L-E-G-A-V-E-T. Welcome, Al, to Disrupt TV. Wow, that was quite an introduction. I, I, I think I feel like I'm almost the same, the same color of my dress, but thank you. <laughs> I had to cut it short. We only have a 20-minute segment, and you've done a lot. Thank you. Thank you I'm not that young well. anymore, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have the best-selling author here, and more importantly, you've written a bomb-shelling book, This Trampled by Unicorns. Um, there's a, some very interesting theses here. And given what's happened, I think there's a call for more empathetic tech. Let's start there. Like what, what inspired you to write this book? Um, where do we begin? Like why does this become an important topic for you? And then more importantly, you know, why? What was the thesis behind this and why is it empathetic tech important? So let's start there. Okay, so uh, you asked why. Um, I didn't wake up one morning saying, okay, I'm gonna write a book. It just really came over time because I kept talking about the fact that uh, we need to be more empathetic, we need to be more human focused. I've been, as you mentioned earlier, I've been working in tech for quite some time and I I really wanted to paint an exhaustive and balanced picture of the impact of big tech on humanity. Uh, What I I call in in the book, the good, the bad and the ugly because I found that too often uh, books and, and media articles were too one-sided. They were either describing technology as something like amazing, don't you dare ever questioning it, or the exact opposite, uh, which was like, oh my God, tech is horrible, like we should throw everything away and just go back into our caves. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 so, definitely. 
I wanted to explain why, because of the deficit of empathy at the core of the tech ecosystem, we're finding ourselves at a crossroad where the negative is starting to outweigh the positive. And I wanted to say not everything is lost. And so that was the first goal. And then the second the second goal was to actually offer solutions because I, I, I want things to get better. And I believe that each stakeholder in the tech ecosystem could actually do something, not just the big tech companies, so it starts with them, but also the investors, the media, the users, uh, the government, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was really the two goals, like paint a, uh, a balanced picture of tech and how we got where we are right now, this crossroad. And then half of the book is about solution. It's about what is it that we can actually do. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you know, you, you, in terms of big tech's failure uh, and where they come from, where they're sourced from, there's references to cultural insularity, um, hyper growth, self-sustaining ecosystems, lack of diversity. You penned an article right after you were announced as the CEO of TechStars talking about the importance of diversity. Uh, what's the, as, as part of the solution, what's the role of the CEO in terms of really championing uh, the solutions we need in order to create a more empathetic um, world. Uh, the founder of my company speaks to values, create values, and business can be the greatest platform for change. Um, and, and so can you talk a little bit about the solutions and the role of CEO or perhaps advice to CEOs that are watching, what they need to do to really champion empathy? I, it's interesting. It's the first time, as you can imagine, I've done quite a few, a few conversations like that over the last four months. That's the first time someone is asking me very specifically what a CEO can do. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to start by saying what I always say to my teams, any, at any company I've ever worked at. It's, I really do not believe in this idea of a one man or in, in the, in this particular occasion, a one woman show. Uh, I don't believe that companies are built by individuals. I believe that companies are built by teams. Mm. Uh, and while the CEO has absolutely a key role, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more practical and actually tell you what, are, what I believe are the things that CEO can do, I also think that we have to move away from this um, uh, God syndrome. Like this idea, especially I find in, in, in tech with founders who are seen almost like God on earth, uh, like we have to move away from this idea that the destiny of of companies, uh, the, the destiny of a company holds solely in the hand of, of a founder. And by the way, related to that, we have to move away. And I talk about that in the book. We have to move away from this idea that if we could only just get rid of and you, you, you'd name whatever favorite CEO you have. Like if we, if we could just get rid of Mark, Travis, Adam, et cetera, et cetera, or Jeff, uh, like suddenly tech would be more empathetic. And the reality is I actually don't think that would help that much. Uh, I think there's, there's much more deeply ingrained, uh, ingrained questions around that. Having said that, uh, I do think that CEO do have uh, absolutely a role to play. Uh, and I think it started with themselves. I think the, a lot of CEO, I think don't consider empathy as a strength. They consider it as a weakness. And some of them will tell you that openly and they, they're very conscious of their opinion, but most of them will just not really think about it, uh, very consciously, but they would just associate empathy 
with sympathy or with pity and fundamentally they will they will associate it with like bad decision or weak decision like the idea being like you can't take harsh decision if you're too empathetic and i, I talked in a book about the fact that i am yet to find a tech company that is too empathetic <laughs> so it, i'm not saying that 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 there's not work to be done but like we're, we're miles away from that so the first thing is you have to decide as a ceo that being empathetic and really what we're talking about maybe we should have started with that is what is empathy from a corporate perspective um and from a corporate perspective being empathetic is is really um is really about uh thinking about developing the ability for a company to understand and integrate into its decision making the impact it has on people not just its employee not just its customer uh, not just its business partner not just the local community but like in general this all of us we usually are in companies that have pretty large impact and so empathy is just that is like understand and integrate the impact of your the, the impact your decision have on other people so this is strength like if you're a leader who is able to do that it means that you can see around the corners it means that you will predict better people's reaction that you can integrate them more into the decision making and so it starts again sorry for the very long answer but it starts with the ceo being really convinced that being empathetic is actually a skill it's something that would actually make him a better leader and so he can hire an executive coach to do that he can make it a personal goal uh, to hire and promote more empathetic people in his company or in her company because they he or she realizes that like this is really important um one of my favorite recommendation uh, is like stop delegating empathy to other people and the number of CEO that I've seen saying oh yeah, yeah my, my HR people are dealing with like the people problem this to me or or, or my COO is dealing with the people problem <laughs> and so that to me is like delegating empathy stop doing that like take ownership and then there's again there's a bunch of stuff I could talk about this for about three hours <laughs> Well, this is more of a statement from me than a question, but what I loved about the first article you penned, again, you were promoted to see, or you were promoted to see, or not promoted, but uh, identified as CEO of Techstars 10 days ago. Yeah. And uh, what I loved about your first article was, I found empathetic people are very purpose-driven. And in your first article, you wrote, access to capital and network continues to perpetuate the lack of diversity. And the Techstars model, like any other, allows us to take access far off the beaten path of traditional networks and hubs and deliver more impact at scale. And you specifically said, and while there is so much work to be done, I'm excited by our partnership with change makers like Harlem Capital, by our aggressive commitments to empowering 1,000 diverse CEOs and the importance of the work with uh, Techstar Foundation. So you talk about empathy as a superpower and a must need in society today, but you specifically target goals and speak to how companies can think about driving a more purposeful, more meaningful engagement um, and, in terms of holistic success, not just your companies, but everyone that touches tech stars. And I thought that was brilliant. Sorry, that's just a statement. Ray, go ahead. <laughs> I do. I mean, I mean, I'm. Thank you. I'm just gonna take the compliment. I'm not gonna. No, I, I, you know, I, I think just like your book, giving example use cases of how we can fix these issues, or at least be mindful, because so many of us have blind spots in terms of things that we can improve. 
you, you brilliantly identify specifics. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry. I, I, I don't know about the brilliant, but I, I'm just going to say that I think that we first need to align on what the problem is. And I think in many cases, we don't necessarily agree. And so like, just, just like all aligning on the fact that we need really, really need more diversity is an important thing. And aligning on the fact that this is good for business is important. Then we need to put numbers because you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think it starts really with like making sure that there are numbers and targets. And then you need to be very concrete in the solutions that you're, you're suggesting. And I think a lot of the conversation we've been having over the last, give or take three to four years, basically following the Me Too movement in tech, um, you had like the big PR announcements uh, for some company, you had some numbers that were there, but they were not necessarily tracked systematically. For a lot of companies, they were not even tracked, or if they were tracked, they were not publicly tracked. Uh, and then the, the, the activities, the actions were very on the surface, very, very like, oh, we want, to, we, we want change, but we don't want to change. But that's really, to me, it really summarized, it's really being summarized besides, oh yeah, we want more diversity, but we don't want to change anything about our criteria to recruit, the type of work that we're giving to people, how we assess people, how we promote people. Like, so we want change, but we don't want to change. And, and that's a bit of a problem. For sure. I think you're on mute, Ray. Yeah, Ray. Sorry. I think you I interviewed Dave Cohen five years ago, uh, you know, founder of Techstars. And yeah. yeah, the spirit of giving and generosity is, is, is there. Uh, you know, anyone who's gone through the accelerator program and the mentorship program just knows that the folks at Techstars just deeply care about your success. Uh, and in fact, the reputation is you go out of your way to ensure success. So it doesn't surprise me the number of investments and the success you've had with these incredible existing unicorns and, of course, successful public companies that, that we referenced at the beginning of the show. I hope I will help continue the tradition. <laughs> that was really for me the what I thought was amazing about Techstars is, is um, this what 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 we call the give first principle, which is really about like uh, this idea that don't don't tech just give, and then you will see like things will happen. Techstars is very focused on on founders and on helping them. Uh, it's about providing founders with mentorship with access to talent, with access to an entrepreneurial network, to access to investors, et cetera, et cetera. So that I thought was just amazing. And then the other piece that I, especially on the back of the book I've just written, um, this idea that you could actually combine good return on investment, uh, because Techstars is not a non-for-profit. Techstars is actually <laughs> an investor. Uh, you could actually combine a very good return on investment and positive social impact you could actually you you had to even because of the model you you had to go and look for entrepreneurs uh, who would normally not be helped by traditional VC and so that's actually like so deeply ingrained into the Techstars model that to me it was like it was a revelation it was like oh my god you can actually combine making money and doing good <laughs> <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive no, that's Ray, I, I can't hear you. I don't know if uh, my Al can no, hear you. No, I can't hear you. All oh, right. Can you hear me now? Yes. So, there we go. So what happens in the future? Um, three to five years out, we go talking, we see what's next. Like, where do you see that? Um, 
What happens? I mean, we might have only been in this role for 10 days. <laughs> she's I a visionary. I, I know she's a visionary. Look, at, at Techstars, I can't tell you because right now I'm in the, I'm in the, at the very beginning of what I call my 100-day listening tour with the idea that I want to talk to every single employees and I want to talk to as many uh, of our uh, customers as I can, which are the entrepreneurs. Like I really believe that Techstars is um, the, the primary customer of Techstars is entrepreneur. We want them to be happy. We want them to be successful. And I'm not going to create a plan before I talk to as many as I can. Uh, <laughs> objectively. Now, in terms no, of great point. tech, uh, I think it's going to depend a lot on, on what's happening in the next few years, especially as governments are starting to realize that the consumer internet is a topic of national security. Uh, as governments start to realize that a con the consumer internet company have a direct impact internally, so on, on their citizens, uh, but also externally in their relationship with other states. And so what's, th there's going to be a lot of conversation in the next, and a lot of decision in the next three to five years around government control, around fragmentation of the internet. I mean, China led the way many, many years ago with the Great Firewall. I think there is a very decent chance that we are going to see similar model uh, in other countries. I mean, India has started doing something like that by kicking out Chinese companies. Uh, Europe and, and, and the U.S. are actually taking, I mean, having some conversations about some limitation, etc. cetera. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think there are a lot of people who are very positively trying to keep like the fundamental value of, of the internet as it was created. And so to me, it's actually one of the best time ever to be in tech um, because I think we're deciding right now what tech is going to look like in three to five years. And I mean, really like right now, like in, in, in this year, the next year. Um, and then by doing that, we're also defining how humanity is going to look like because tech is so ingrained now into, uh, into our day-to-day -day life. So that's, there's never been a better time to be a, a, a tech uh, a tech leader. <laughs> this is wonderful. We're here with Mael Gave, uh, our tech executive, entrepreneur, investor, and author of Trampled by Unicorns, and in her new role, 10 Days In, the CEO of Tech Stars. So, Trebian, awesome. Congratulations. And more importantly, <laughs> hope to see you again soon. So, thank you. You're awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Wow. Best selling author, incredible CEO, Tech Stars, lucky to have her. And uh, they're going to be even more successful than, than they already are. So, Ray, three extraordinary, extraordinary guests. Uh, for the, those in the audience, you know this is a favorite hour of the week for both of us. That was episode 220. We just concluded our 667th interview. Next uh, week is episode 221. And what a lineup. We have Dory Clark. Dory is Oh, wow. Brilliant. Dory's back. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, I think you're 50, a best-selling, multiple best-selling author, advisor, strategic consulting, executive coach, keynote speaker. Dory is one of my favorite people, and she's going to be on our show next week. Greg Johnson, CEO of Invoca, uh, will be on our show. And we have two additional guests, uh, new authors of a best-selling book, Chris O'Hara, Vice President of Product Marketing at Salesforce, and uh, Marty Kahn, Senior Vice President of Strategy, Marketing, Cloud, and they just wrote a new book on CDP, and we're going to learn about uh, you know, leading-edge digital marketing with two of the best marketeers that I know. 
Rachel I can't, remarks. <laughs> I can't wait till you do the bio for Marty Khan. It is the Marty most awesome bio. <laughs> you guys look it up if you're looking on Wikipedia. It is freaking awesome. And Dory Clark was on episode 21, 20, I think 21 or 23. So it's awesome. Almost so, 200 episodes ago. Yeah. Almost 200 episodes ago. And she'll be back. So I'm super excited. I don't know what's going on around here, but every, there's a lot of movement. Look for what's happening out in tech. Um, catch one of our shows, Constellation Research TV, uh, episode four. It's popping up. You'll see the analyst on there. It airs Wednesday, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, and then more importantly, if you're interested in sponsoring Disrupt TV, let us know. Um, we've got limited sponsorships and some strict criteria. So, But if you're interested in catching us, uh, please join us. 50,000 average views, 150,000 views a month. Uh, and more importantly, uh, it's all about you. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Vala, any last thoughts on your end? Just uh, thank you for uh, giving us an opportunity to connect you with our guests and vice versa. Please stay in touch with us on Twitter and social. Please recommend guests. If there's someone you want to see, uh, we have a very good batting average in terms of making an ask and having guests join. <laughs> so, so I mean, we're several months booked in advance, so your 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 recommendations may not be on the show until April, May, June. But please let us know. Use hashtag Disrupt TV. Let us know who you want to see, and Ray and I will do our best to get them on the show. So, thank you for watching. Hey, thanks everyone. Happy Friday! If it's Friday, it's 11 a.m. Pacific. It's Disrupt TV. Thanks a lot. Cheers. <laughs>